0: Well, Father, we do believe that you have spoken and you've uh, spoken clearly in your word and that you continue to speak to us through your word today as we take our Bibles, uh, strengthen those who are struggling, um, clear our minds and help us to uh, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand understand ourselves uh, through your eyes and help us to walk in the truth in newness of life that we would overcome sin, and that the life of Christ would be seen in us on an ongoing basis. We commit this time to you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you need to know that um, some time ago, researchers um, have determined and have concluded unequivocally that without exception, universally... All humans host a most devastating parasite. You know the word parasite. A parasite is when one organism that cannot live without another lands upon or within a host organism and it resides and it depends upon that host organism for its sustenance. The thing is, the parasite makes no positive contribution to the host organism. And most often, it destroys the host organism. It's an interesting word, this word parasite. It comes from an old Greek word, para, you know, para, to come alongside. Para- And then there's a word from the Greek language that is cytos, cytos, "parasitos." It means grain or wheat or food. It has an interesting origin, this word. It's from ancient Greece where um, one who would come in among the rich or the wealthy and they would frequent their tables and they earned their welcome by their flattery. So they were really not on the official guest list at all. They were not even supposed to be there, but through their flattery, they would come in and and the host then would see that they had a place place at the table and there they would, para, come alongside, cytos, wheat or food, para food. They would come alongside the food and they would eat off of those uh, that would feed them for no good reason. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the parasite that we're talking about today, um, and that concerns us, this parasite, and our message title is, The Parasite of Pride, this parasite is not microscopic, it's not biological, it's not physiological, in fact, it is a spiritual issue. As a host, interestingly enough, of the pride parasite, most of us, are very unaware much of the time of its presence. However, when it flares up, those around us will witness its symptoms immediately. One of the unfortunate side effects is that most of the time we will not believe that we have it, and in fact, we will often deny its presence and we will deal quite harshly with anyone around us who's bold enough to point out the symptoms that are manifesting themselves from the parasite pride. In our sermon series on sin this fall, and we will run up through Thanksgiving, we would be remiss, and it would be an incomplete series, if we did not deal with the topic of pride. This morning, what I'd like to do for the balance of our time, is I would like to look at uh, one main point, and that is the seriousness of pride, I found in my study, as I put our message together, that it was um, uh, difficult to deal with pride because a- as you study it in God's Word, it grows. It's a huge subject. It has lots of ramifications. It's one of those subjects that's a little bit like the topic of love. You think you can explain it and you do know quite a bit about it, but the more you talk about it, the more you find it's a little bit difficult to to define, and it's certainly difficult to manage. Pride is a little bit that way, this subject. It's permeating, it's all-encompassing. We all understand it at a lot of different levels, and yet in some ways it's difficult to get a handle on how to deal with pride. And so this morning I want us to do uh, some Bible study together, and we're going to have four points uh, that are largely warnings about the seriousness of pride. I want us to begin in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and I want you to see, number one on our list, that this subject is very serious, and if we're going to deal with sin in our lives, and we're going to understand sin, then we have to have an understanding of pride, and its ramifications on the topic of sin, or we might miss the point. The seriousness of the pride parasite, number one, our... Our first reality of it is that it is in its essence, pride in its essence is is part of the source and the substance of essentially all sin. Let me say that again. The, The parasite of pride is very serious in the life of the Christian because pride in its essence is part of the source and substance of essentially all sin. I want us to revisit Genesis chapter 3 and this uh, section on origins. Now, um, this is where sin entered the world. And you remember we talked about that word, how, how sin was imputed to us from Adam. That is, it was passed on. And we received it from Adam. And this is where it happened. We call this the fall. It wasn't too many weeks ago that we were here. But I want you to see that as the serpent comes in, verse 1, he's very crafty. You know that. He speaks to the woman and he questions, did God really say? And the woman says what God says and she kind of adds a little bit. He may or may not have said that. Um, But then the serpent, verse 4, notice, said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it... Now, notice where the serpent goes. Notice, and in fact, let's remind ourselves of our definition of sin. Remember, sin is anything that violates the will, the word, or the character of God. Okay, so God puts us in a parameter of safety. That's His will. He gives us His word and He instructs us. All of this flows out of His character... But our problem is, is that we love to step out of that parameter. We think we know better. That's what Eve did, right? When she saw with her eyes that it looked good, it appealed to her flesh. But I want you to see that as Eve misses the mark of God's will here and she steps outside of God's plan of blessing for her life, notice, notice the pass key. Notice, this, notice the key that... Satan is going to give her that she's going to slide in the lock and it's going to open the gate that will let her out of God God's design parameters of blessing in her life. Notice what it is. He says, he contradicts clearly God's word. All right? You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and here it is, and you will be like God. Eve! You don't want to miss this. Eve, you deserve this. Eve, you're number one. Put, put yourself in, in God's eyes. He's holding back on you. He ha- there's. Look at it, Eve. Look how beautiful it is. And so he, she slides the pass card of pride. It appeals to her pride. It appeals to her ego. It appeals to her flesh. In such a way that she, she thinks to herself, well, Yes, I would love to eat that, I'm sure. That's most beautiful. And so she steps outside of the fence, takes the fruit and eats of it. And we have here at its base, in its foundation... The ingredient in the recipe of sin that you will see is always there. Any, Almost any formula of sin that you can come up with, professional or homemade, you will see that at some level, pride is involved. That's why a guy loses his temper, right? That's why he loses his temper because he's been humiliated, he's been embarrassed. And so to save face, he starts to bash things up to try to take control. Don't mess with me. It's why people steal stuff. It's why they'll take things. Because they want it. They deserve it. Why should they have it? They've got plenty of these things on the shelf here. Why? They'll never miss it. It's, I need it. And ultimately, it's, it's part of their pride. It's part of their satisfaction of their ego. It's part of their fleshly need to elevate themselves to levels where they don't belong this is why a man can walk off his, walk off from his family how could a man leave his wife and his kids and go off with some because of his pr- they don't tr- i can't believe how they treat me she, bah, 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 and, it's into, and so i will do what i want and i'm going to satisfy myself in almost every level some of you work on a job front where where the boss needs to humble himself and admit that he doesn't know what he's doing and that there's people there that could make things function a lot better if he would just acknowledge it. But the boss refuses, and so it costs the company money, and it, it, even co- it slows down things. It ruins morale. All because of what? Because of his pride, his ego. He refuses to humble himself. And so you will see that laced in the formula of every recipe of sin is pride. It's pride. It's what Satan used to open the door, to get outside the parameters of God's blessing. Pride is so serious, and this parasite must be dealt with because, number one, pride in its essence is part of the source and substance of essentially all sin. Number two, and I want you to go to the book of Psalms. We're doing Bible study together this morning, so you have to turn in your Bibles, um, and I trust that's not tedious to you. I want you to turn to Psalm 101, uh, verse 5. I want you to see that, um, number two, that the, this topic is very serious because the pride parasite is number two. It is extremely repulsive and unacceptable to God. It is extremely repulsive and unacceptable to God. By the way, before we read our verse, did you notice there's not a sermon title screen up here today? Um, I left it blank on purpose because I was looking at parasites. And I was thinking, what could I put up for a picture Um, you know, I like to put a sermon title screen. It kind of decorates our walls. It brings a little light, a little aesthetic beauty to our room while we're studying God's Word together. And I was uh, looking for a picture that would represent the parasite of sin. And uh, I mean, you can't believe the pictures that come up. You know, parasites are ugly. I mean, grotesquely swollen parts of the body with open sores and then some long white worm being pulled out or out of the eye, this leech coming out of the eye and being held. Do you want me to keep going? Did you think that it, Don't you think it would have enhanced the sermon to have a picture of a parasite up there? Lots of times in third world countries it's a problem. And the beasts are in the water and then they... They generate themselves and they turn into big worms, or someone has a tapeworm. It's just unbelievably grotesque. It reminds me of how Stephen Mackenzie are when they were in Chad Africa, our missionary who's now in Orlando, Florida, with Pioneers, and their daughter Eleanor, who's a beautiful young lady in her teen years now, when she was a younger child, they could watch a worm go through her foot underneath the skin. They had parasites in them. Yeah, take your kids, go to the mission field, it's good. That feeling of, of like somebody uh, opening their mouth and pulling out a long worm that's been living inside their gums or cheek or embedded in their back of their cranium area, how gross that would be, I want you to capture that feeling on this subject. I want you to see that pride is absolutely repulsive to God. And he speaks in no uncertain terms about it. Look what he says. Psalm 101, verse 5. He begins with a word of, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. So don't talk badly about your neighbor. Or at least don't do it in secret. Do it openly or God will destroy you. He says, Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God makes himself absolutely clear. A haughty look, an arrogant spirit, God says, I won't endure it. Do you know that we live in an, a very egocentric culture and society? Now, what's today? Say Sunday. What does Sunday represent in our country? Church, fried chicken, and Sunday. Good dinner, some football, that's what America's all about, right? Right? Now, I really enjoy football, and I, I like football a lot. I like to play it and watch it. But I don't have to work very hard to get you to see in your mind, even if you don't watch much football, of what happens when one of these guys score a touchdown, right? This afternoon, he will make it through. He will cross the white line into the end zone, and what will he do? If he wants to get fined, it depends. He might spike the ball a certain way. He might throw it up into the stands, and then he's going to do his dance. Right? He might, he might shoot guns. He might take his hands and symbolize putting on his championship belt. He wants the world to know what? I am the man. He Look what I just did. It's kind of a microcosm of how we think in our culture. We think we're responsible for things that we have hard, very little to do with. I'm not saying he's not a gifted runner and that he didn't hit hard. But I'm telling you, he's thinking, what a gift I am to the team. He's not even thinking, the general manager's thinking, I might trade you next year. He ought to be thankful that somebody drafted him. And then he had a lot of coaches that taught him. He had a quarterback that chose him instead of the other guy to give him the ball. He ought to walk over to those big fat guys up and down the line and say, thanks for opening up the hole so I could run the ball in here, right? There's a whole bunch of factors that went on and he acts like it was all me baby it was all me and I know that they know all of what I just said and that it's an overstatement and a little bit of an overreach but if anything pictures in my mind as a microcosm of the egocentricity of our culture it has to be a guy scoring a touchdown in our Sunday afternoon screens It's something that permeates our whole society. We have to really guard it. We love to think of ourselves as better than we are. I want to make absolutely clear that I don't think at all that we should not... Let me not say that in the double negative. I think that we should improve ourselves as we have opportunity. If you take piano lessons, you certainly ought to practice and develop. If you are a basketball player, you ought to work at it, develop your game. If you're not good at spelling, you better work at your spelling list. That's not necessarily ego-driven in any way. That is developing yourself. You should be the best person you can be. But to imagine ourselves to be something that we're not... Purely out of an egocentricity or a drive of our pride can be very sinful and disgusting in the eyes of God. Let's continue our Bible study now. Psalm uh, Psalm 101 verse 5 said that whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, God says, I will not endure. Let's go to Proverbs and quickly flip through some Proverbs here. Proverbs chapter 6, and uh, this is a familiar list that God has given us. And you probably remember this list. We reference it on occasion. Proverbs 6.16. Proverbs 6.16. Remember he says there are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination. That was a writing mechanism of the Hebrew writer. It was for exclamation. I'm going to tell you six things that God can't... Yay, seven things. So that means you better listen up. This is a really important list. I want you to notice what's first on the list. What's the very first thing on the list? Haughty eyes, a proud look, a proud look, a person who is arrogant and proud. And what does it say? It says six things that the Lord, what? He hates it. He hates it. Remember that our point is that the parasite of pride is extremely repulsive and unacceptable to God. Here he says he hates it. The psalmist said he will not endure it. Turn the chapter to 813, the page to 813. Look what he says in Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Notice that pride and arrogance are again stated as something that God hates. By the way, especially some of you young men here, did you notice what it said in the last part of that verse? It said, and perverted speech I hate. Um, We live in a culture where perverted speech is really acceptable. In a lot of venues. It's remarkable to me. God says, I hate perverted speech. I want to challenge you to be careful to listen to what your words are. Don't, do not buy in that it's okay or manly to use perverted speech. God says, I hate it. I want to endure it. I don't accept it. Learn to distinguish yourself as a Christian young man by self-control with your words. There's nothing flattering about Perverse speech. It simply speaks to the ugly condition of your heart. It's a scary thing to know that the words of our mouths reveal the condition of our hearts. Proverbs 16, 15, by the way. As we turn again, a couple more verses right here. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Excuse me, I said 15. Proverbs 16, 5. Look what it says. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. That is a powerful verse. Look what he says. Everyone who is arrogant, proud in their heart, that's an abomination to God, and it will not go unpunished. 21.4. Look at 21.4. And I assure you, we are only scratching the surface in our word study here. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked... Are what? It's sin. It's sin. There, it ties into our sin study. This topic of pride is so closely related in our sin study. Number one, it's in essence, a part in its essence of the source and substance of all sin. Number two, it is extremely repulsive and unacceptable to God. Number three, I want you to notice its disastrous effects. It's disastrous effects. Turn to chapter 16, 18, perhaps the most misquoted verse in all the Bible, because we can I can even prove it maybe right now. Pride cometh before a Yep, that's not what it says. That's kind of the proverb, but it's not what it says. And it comes from this verse. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. I want you to remember this point. We're going to tie point number three and point number four. And we're going to use a living illustration from the Word of God to show you how... A proud spirit sets one up for a major fall in their lives. It reminds me of a 17-year-old Van Marceau thinking he was really hot stuff at Vicksburg High School when I first bought my new cowboy boots. I bought them, uh, they had the eagle stamped in in the upper part of them. Square toes, I thought I was really cool and I, I wore my cowboy boots to school and I was especially sh- sure that this would earn me some credit when I walked past this section in the hall where all the cute girls were hanging out and some of the cheerleader girls and all the popular girls and they were hanging out and I was very sensitive that they would think, surely they would notice that that Van Marceau was so cool with his cowboy boots as I walked by. You know, most guys, especially, you don't really know what women think, and it's certainly, they're not very often impressed with cowboy boots, but I know that now. I've told you before how disappointing it was for me to learn that what most impresses a girl is niceness. Niceness? What's that got to do with anything? Anyway... So I'm walking down the hall in my cowboy boots and I'm right there where they're looking. You know, you know what it is embedded in our psyche, embedded in our emotional framework. These moments, these snapshots of life where we move from being just a normal person to where we become very concerned egotistically about our standing with the people around us. And ultimately our pride takes over. It distorts the reality of the moment. And I'm walking down the hall. And you know how it is when you put your heel forward and it just keeps on going. And right there, when I'm trying to be most impressive, I do one of these slides where I almost fell. Hmm. That's this verse. That's this verse, isn't it? Pride. Pride sets us up for pain, a painful fall. It sets us up for destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. The Apostle Paul taught this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where he said, He said, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he, anybody becoming puffed up and strong, thinking you've got it together, thinking you're the man, thinking that you've accomplished this in your own strength, you better watch it. You're ready to fall. Organizations can do this, countries can do this, presidents can do this, churches can do this, pastors can do this. When you think you're something, you're setting yourself up for a face plant. God will see to it. The reason this is so serious, number three, is the disastrous, the disastrous effects of pride when we fall. I want to add number four and then I want to conclude with a character account where this is illustrated briefly turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11 and I want you to see a warning that God gave his children Israel about pride in their lives remember we're talking about the seriousness of the parasite pride it hosts itself in all of our flesh it's the it's part of the source and substance of all sin. It's extremely repulsive and unacceptable in the eyes of God. It is disastrous in its effect, and it will bring a fall in your life. Finally, I want you to see why it's so serious, and it is that it is very serious, and I want to add, number four, that we are most vulnerable in times of comfort and wealth. We are most vulnerable to pride in times of comfort, ease... And wealth. I want you to see the warning that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Notice what he says in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. Okay, There's his boundaries. There's God's fences. His commandments, his rules, and his statutes. Often our young people will look at us and will rebel against our rules, our lines that are drawn, our statutes our fences that we build. They don't realize in their immaturity that one of the greatest things about their mom and dad is that they will be blessed and kept safe inside those parameters. And when they're warned about stepping outside of them, that's when they tend to lash out and the ugliness of pride comes out, right? And it comes out in venomous form. I don't care what you think. I will do what I want to do. That's nothing other than pride and arrogance. And a lack of humility. Young people, if you hear yourself talking like that, you need to wake up. God called out his people. And he said, "When I, I've given you commandments, I've given you rules, I've given you statutes, and I command you today... Lest, look what his warning is. Look at the warning. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 8. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses, and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then what will happen? Your heart will turn proud. Your heart will be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's what we do, isn't it? It's what we do. Turn to Daniel chapter 4 in conclusion today. Daniel chapter 4. As we deal with the parasite sin, we need to recognize because of of all of the communities of the world, America still is way towards the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, of affluence, of comfort, of ease, of being well fed. And he says, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, I'm warning you that when you, when you get into your own land, he said to his children, Israel, to the Israelites, and you're no longer in the wilderness. See, what happened in the wilderness, now they had great failures in the wilderness, of course, but what they did is they looked to God, right? We need your help. When we're weak, when we have nothing, when we're in brokenness, We turn ourselves towards God. We find ourselves on our knees, begging for God to deliver us. God, meet our needs. We have nowhere to turn but you. But then the day comes when the wallet is fat, the refrigerator is full, the house is big, the furniture comfortable, the screen is huge. Who needs God? You need to know that this is a serious matter because The more you have and the more comfortably you live, the more likely it is that you will succumb to the tendency to yield to your egotistical drive and pride and you will begin to take credit for things that you shouldn't take credit for. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him, don't you? Chapter 4 comes after chapter 3. Did you know that? Chapter 3, you know pretty well. Chapter 3 is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the egotistical drive of Nebuchadnezzar when he built the huge statue of himself on the plain of Dura, and they wouldn't bow down, so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he saw a fourth one, like the Son of Man and Son of God walking among them, very likely a pre-incarnate visitation of the second member of the Godhead, there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, loosing them of their ropes, protecting them, assuring them of his presence. What a, what a great story. What a great story. And so then, if you're in chapter 4, look. let your eyes go to the end of chapter 3. You know that what happened here in the fiery furnace, actually it's the beginning of chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree that everybody is to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has just been in a time of spiritual renewal in his life. He has just had a wake-up call. He He has just been smacked upside the head by God. You are not the big man. Just because you built your statue, you would think at the end of the fiery furnace experience, when he acknowledges in this profound statement... He says in verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Pretty good theology for a pagan king. He's had this spiritual renewal. His eyes have been opened and then notice what the next line is and i nebuchadnezzar was what's the next phrase i was at ease in my house prospering in my palace it's just a brief statement but oh man the yellow flag should should wave warning caution nebuchadnezzar when you're fat and taking it easy and well fed and you're comfortable and then do you know what happens he lies down to take a nap and he has a dream you remember this dream? It's a dream about a huge tree that grows up and it can be seen all around the world. It's representative of the Babylonian kingdom. It has big branches and in the branches the birds come and have their nests and it's a safe place. Underneath it is shade and the animals come and are well fed. And, and this big huge tree is all over the world seen. And, and then all of a sudden a statement comes, a voice comes out of heaven and it says, Cut down the tree. And Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming all this on the day, chapter 4, verse 4, when he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. He says, Cut down the tree, leave the stump, band it with iron and bronze, leave a remnant of it there, but remove its influence, remove its glory, remove all of the big image, and it really disturbs him. And there's a voice from heaven that says, I'm just going to remove you out of the way. He doesn't know what to do with this. So he calls in all of his wise men, all of the Chaldeans, all of the paid magicians that are there to to answer his riddles and to help him understand life and the mysteries of life. And they can come up with no answer. And then Daniel is brought in. And Daniel is a man of God. And immediately immediately Daniel hears the... Dream And he knows immediately what happens. In verse 22 of chapter 4, Daniel immediately says, "...it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth." Earlier when he understood, Daniel heard the dream and immediately he says to him, I wish that this dream was about your enemies and not about you. And so Nebuchadnezzar puts him at ease so that he can give the the solution to the dream without knowing he's going to lose his head. Kings would do that. Tell me the answer. They give him the answer. They don't like the answer, so they kill the guy. Well, he assured Daniel that he wanted to hear his answers. Daniel says, if only this was about your enemies. He then says, it is you, O king. And he says, your greatness has grown Verse 23, and because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron, bronze, tender grass, and field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods, that would be years of time, pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be Wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. He then says, verse 28 12 months go by. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And this is what he's thinking. And the king answered, doesn't say who asked. I think he's talking to himself. And he answers himself. The question is something like, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the greatest of them all? And so he answers. Oh, that would be me. Is not this great... Great Babylon, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? Don't I deserve a kingdom like this? My glory is so great that this city is barely worthy of my kingdom and my glory. It basically just about represents my glory. And immediately, he loses his mind. His color's orange. He's just crazy. He goes nuts. He can't sleep. We don't have the details, but when you read the rest of the story, you find out that for seven years, he lived with a malady, a psychological disorder, where he believed himself to be an animal. It says that his hair grew in such a way that it reminded the people of eagle feathers. I don't know exactly what that means. I take it that it went something like this, that... The stewards who were serving the king are there inside the room, you know, watching. And Oneb walks out by the balcony and he says, What a beautiful city. Who's the greatest of them all? Yes, it's me. I don't even need a mirror to tell me that. It is me. He's already been warned. He totally disregards the word of God to him. He totally disregards the wise counsel of Daniel to him because proud, arrogant people don't want to hear from God or people. And then he says to himself, I'm the man. Where's a football that I can spike? And then he goes out of his ever-loving mind. And he begins to evidently screech like like a bird, bark, howl, carry on like an animal. And so his stewards are concerned. They come in. What are they going to do with this guy? They don't know whether they should lay hands on him. They don't know what to do with him. They try to calm him. He growls at him and shows fangs like a wolf. He scratches himself. He wets himself. He's all a mess. He goes crazy. They don't know what to do. I'm sure that they work very hard to keep him out of the public eye. And so it says later that he ended up eating grass in a pasture like an ox. He thought he was a cow. And they couldn't take care of him. They would try to wash him. He would growl him, attack him with his fangs and his claws. And so they just put a padded stall, opened the door, fenced it in, put a screen up so nobody could see him. And then they scratched their heads. We don't know what to do with the guy who can't handle him. And they just put him in a box and put him in a cage and just kind of made sure he had food. And there he was. And evidently he was unkept. His hair grew and it reminded him of a wild animal. He acted like one. He looked like one. And he behaved like one in his personal care. Awful. You see what happened. Remember point number three. This is a serious matter because of its disastrous effects when we buy into our ego and our pride and our arrogance. And number four, we are most vulnerable in times of comfort and wealth because we think for some reason that we created it all. And so we open ourselves to a process of decision-making that ends up being man-centered, it omits God, and it sets us up for great fall. After seven years, what happens? God allows him to come back to his senses. Let's read the end of chapter 4. He says in verse 36, verse 34, he says, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, there you go, How do you deal with this problem? Turn your eyes towards heaven. Recognize that you are not God. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him. I would say that genuine, meaningful, humble worship is another way to keep perspective, isn't it? He blessed God. He worshipped Him who lives on high. He then espouses another another statement of great... uh, Acknowledgement of who God is theologically for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Don't question God. In other words, He's bringing His life now underneath God. Listen. For the believer in the Lord Christ... To ever successfully overcome the weakness of our flesh, to feed the ego, to give in to pride, we have to take our ego, our pride, our flesh, and we need to bring it in underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, don't we? We need to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ, that he would increase and that we would be diminished. That we would just be his humble servants. Jesus himself, in Philippians chapter 2, what did he say? It says in Philippians chapter 2 that though he could have exalted and lifted himself up, he didn't. He humbled himself and and became a servant to model the life of Christ, to come in under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul taught in Colossians chapter 3 that you have to put off, and he gives a whole list starting with verse 12 in Colossians 3. Put off all this stuff. Anger and malice and deceit. Put it all off and then put on, like putting on a new set of clothes. When I'm in Christ, I put on. And one of the things I put on is what? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, the idea of a humility and a grace that I put it on. Romans chapter 12 says we have to die to our old flesh. We have to lay down our body as it were a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, so that by the renewing of our minds, we can think differently We can have a whole new way of thinking so that in the middle of our affluence, in the middle of our comfort, we will not go up to the railing of our balcony and think, hmm, it's all about me after all. I thought it was. Because we're so vulnerable. He goes on and Nebuchadnezzar says... Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to him. God was merciful. He let the stump grow back. My counselors and my Lord sought me. I had wisdom again. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk, here's our word, in pride... He is able to humble. Listen, He can do it to Nebuchadnezzar. He can do it to us. We need to live with some fear of our flesh, don't we? We need to be afraid of the capacities that dwell within us this side of heaven, even in in our redemptive process. We need to worry about ourselves. We need to regularly remember who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, so that we know with a proper perspective who we are. That's why in the new hymnals, sometimes they'll change in some of the hymns, For such a worm as I, at the cross. For such a worm as I. And in the new hymnals, they change it, For such a one as I. I think for such a worm as I is better. We're so stinking worried about our self-image and so worried about uh, how we're going to think about ourselves. And don't get me wrong, we don't want to abuse anybody. But when I begin to think I'm something that I'm not, I need to remember that I'm nothing but a worm before a holy God. But that He's a holy God who loves worms. And He loves to regenerate and renew and bring newness of life. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you please awaken us in our deepest parts to a sensitivity to understand ourselves, to recognize a capacity that we have to be ego-driven, to think that we're something that we're not, in our pride to reject your word and your instruction and wisdom from wise people, to think that we build our own kingdoms and not recognize that every good gift comes from you, Father, help us to recognize, as James instructed us, that you will tear down the haughty and the proud, but you lift up and elevate the humble. Would you help us to bring our arrogances, our fleshly zeals, our pride, help us to come in under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that it would be all about him and not about us. That we would be nothing other than a reflection of our precious Lord Jesus. That it would be our great joy to just be your humble servants. And we'll praise you when anything good happens through us or when you give us good things. And we will acknowledge carefully that we are not the source, but you are the source. We also recognize we don't save ourselves and that You save us through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. And I pray that you would work in hearts here today that if someone needs to look to the cross and be saved, that you would open their eyes, save their soul from hell, save their soul from their own fleshly pride and arrogance. Help them to humbly come to Jesus today. Help us, Lord, to just trust you and to obey you and to walk with you in all godliness. Put aside pride to have the beautiful jewelry of humility about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.